0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, where industry professionals beat over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Tonight, I feel like we're back on campus because we've gathered together some of the top minds in the Kansas State University Pet Food Program. For this week's podcast, we'll continue the discussion started at our very first Research Showcase webinar, which aired on March 16th. The Research Showcase featured three graduate students who presented TED Talk-styled presentations, giving the audience a look into the newest research taking place in the pet food arena. We'll feature other university programs going forward, and if you'd like to, uh, for us to consider showcasing your university program, simply email us at anh.marketing at to find a recording of the K-State Showcase webinar, go to balkemanh.com slash science and scroll down to the past webinar list. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts for the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we have a full house and we've had to pull, pull up a few extra chairs around the table, starting with Dr. Greg Aldrich, one of the founders of the pet food program at K-State. Welcome, Greg. First, uh, tell us what's in your glass and then please introduce this impressive group of graduate students that you've brought with you here tonight.
1: Well, Scott, thank you very much for the invitation for this evening's activity. And so as a true grain scientist, I'm drinking something that's a little bit corn and a little bit wheated. It's uh, Wellers on the Rocks. Mm. And so uh, it's a great uh, way to start the evening. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, so nice. with me, uh, my students this evening are Christina Lemma. Christine is a master's student, comes to us from Ecuador uh with us as well as amanda dayton she's a phd student has just finished up with her defense uh and she is originally from connecticut and uh with her as well as heather acuff and uh, heather also finished her defense this last week so all three of them are now officially uh to the point that they are uh completed their dissertation or or their thesis and uh, they're getting ready to move on to the next part of their career And uh, Heather comes to us uh, originally from California vis-a-vis Texas, and so uh, each of them uh, has been a big part of our program here for the last two-slash-three-plus years, Uh, and Amanda even was here for four years as an undergraduate before that. And so uh, with that, I'm going to hand it back over to you and to them to, to see if they'll say a few things on their behalf and tell us a little bit about what they're sipping on this evening. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it sounds good. Uh, Amanda, let's start with you. What uh, what are you uh, enjoying tonight? And tell us a little bit about something about yourself.
2: Absolutely. Uh, so I am drinking a Gewürztraminer, so white wine in my little, little tumbler here. Uh, and something interesting about myself. Um, I've been a pet person my entire life, uh, mainly with cats. I had cats growing up and have a little furry cat now.
0: Oh, very nice. And, Christina, would you mind uh, introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about yourself, maybe how you came to uh, choose uh, K-State as a program, and uh, what are you enjoying tonight?
3: Sure. Uh, thank you for the invite of me here. I'm actually having muscle meal, uh, so I ordered some ginger beer and then mixed mix it with vodka. Uh, it's pretty nice, pretty good.
0: <laughs> yeah, very nice.
3: Um, Yeah, I joined the KC program in 2018 uh, and actually my background is in food science. So then I joined the program to learn about food processing. It has been a pleasure being here and I, I chose this program because I have always been surrounded by animals, so I actually own two cats and they live here with me.
0: Mm, Very nice. And Heather, how about yourself?
4: So I'm Heather Acuff, and as Dr. Aldridge introduced, I'm a, a PhD student who's just finished up my program, and I'm very pleased to be enjoying my beverage tonight, which is a Pinot Grigio from Italy. It's a 2019 uh, Peter Zemmer wine, and it's a nice fruity flavor, so perfect for entering into the summer months coming up here. I chose our K-State program primarily because it's a really uh, good cross-disciplinary uh, focus for all of the subject matter that we get to study. So everything from food processing to animal nutrition, working with animals and working uh, with analytical chemistry. So it has a little bit of everything. It's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, excellent. So welcome, everybody. It's, it's nice to have you here this evening and looking forward to our discussion. At my side as co-host tonight is Dr. Eric Altum. Eric, uh, you've earned degrees at Tennessee Clemson, Auburn, so I'm sure you kind of know your way around some college pubs. So, uh, so, with that, what's in your what's in your glass tonight?
5: Well, um, at Tennessee Tech, as it was in Putnam County at the time, my dad was the uh, pastor of the First Baptist Church, and technically, it was a dry county, so I'm not going to let any uh, let any secrets fly there. Um, Clemson, there was a different story. There is Tiger Time, and I've been there numerous times. And in Auburn um i can say that they knew me by my name uh to some degree at the supper club but i'm somewhat reformed so i'm drinking iced tea uh that way in case anybody uh needs bail money or someone to speak to the judge i'll i'll cover okay i'll take care and i'll cover for
0: designated driver that's great
5: (laughs) that's me me. eric
0: i'm not as reformed as you are so tonight i'm enjoying a a a basil hayden hayden's Mm -hmm. it's it's a uh, one of my favorite bourbons, and uh, so that's what I'm having tonight. So cheers, everybody. Welcome to the Real Science Exchange. Appreciate cheers. you coming. Cheers. cheers. Thanks for having us. So, Greg, let's jump right into it. Uh, how and why you helped
1: start the pet food program at K-State. Um, thanks, Scott. The, the how and the why is, seems like it's steeped in a lot of ancient history, but uh, it goes clear back to about 2001 when I was having a discussion with the department chair in animal science here at k-state and i happen to be working for a pet food manufacturing firm in the state of kansas and we got into a discussion about the notion of whether or not we should have something in, along the lines of companion animal nutrition companion animal management pet food science here at kansas state university um, as a little context i'm a k-state alum and uh, did my bachelor's here so it, it's a place that's near and dear to my heart and so uh, through that conversation, we, we kind of came up with a number of different ideas, uh, but nothing really seemed to stick forward about 10 years. And I had been a consultant for a number of those years um, as an independent formulator, nutritionist, tech service provider, new product developer for a number of startup companies. Uh, I was coming over here to Manhattan, uh, living in Topeka at the time, And I was using the extrusion lab and some of the other laboratories here on campus uh, to help with prototype development for some of my clientele. And uh, again, we continue uh, conversations with the faculty, this time uh, more towards the grain science department, which is where we house feed science and management, baking science, and milling science. And we had this conversation at that point about, the opportunity to potentially expand the feed science program. That's manufacturing food items for animals, but mostly for livestock. And uh, the department had an interest in enhancing that program and bringing in students that might have an interest in companion animal foods. And so uh, they asked me to teach a class in 2011. Uh, the faculty, Dr. Sajid Alavi, Um, and a few others got together, and we started planning out a curriculum, and from there, 2012, uh, they asked me to join the faculty as a professor, and uh, the rest of it's been a building process ever since. Uh, So it's been a grassroots effort, more or less uh, started and um, kept moving through various initiatives by faculty, including myself, but a whole bunch of others in animal science, engineering, veterinary medicine, uh, even done some work with some folks in agronomy uh, and chemistry and business. And so the idea is just using a cross campus platform here to create a program that's focused on pet food, the food side of the equation, rather than the nutrition and animal exclusively. And uh, the the rationale for why I think that's important is simply because that's a gap. Uh, There are a number of programs in animal science departments that are focused on nutrition, but almost nothing that is focused on the food side of the equation as a starting point. And uh, that's where I lived as a nutrition consultant and seems to be where we have had a nice home um, and a lot of support from industry partners like BallCam to keep this program rolling and growing. And how many students do you have in the program right now? Well, today, today uh, graduate student-wise, we have 15 on the on the uh, the rolls. Of course, you're gonna see three of these ladies leave us pretty soon, so the number's gonna go down pretty quickly. Um, and we have about 10 undergraduates. Um, the program was originally started focused on the graduate students, and over time we're trying to Uh, shift that focus a little bit, and increase the awareness and opportunities for undergraduates as well. Mm -hmm. And you'll see those numbers start to go up. So today we're running about 25. We hope to get to about 40 to 50 in the next 5 to 10 years.
0: What is the typical path to to the program, and then through the program? And then I'm going to ask each of the young ladies to maybe kind of describe their path.
1: Well, so uh, for the graduate students, the path has been as as diverse as you can can probably imagine. So we've had uh, young folks that have come in through agricultural engineering, and uh, we've had several that have come in through veterinary medicine. Uh, We've had a number of students that were our uh, brain science students, like Amanda, that was feed science and management as her undergrad. Uh, we've also had a number that have come in through food science and animal science so it's been a pretty wide array Uh, most of the time when a student approaches and and by the way i've been just just terribly blessed i've never really had to go out and recruit very hard because this is such a a passion-based area you'll find that when talking with the students there they have a passion for being in the food side of the equation and the animal side and so uh, i've never really had to recruit hard but when students come here that's, that's the first thing I really try to gauge is whether they have a passion or the energy, enthusiasm, dedication to working in this area. And uh, from there, it doesn't matter what their background is. We'll make it work.
0: So, Christina, uh, I think you kind of shared your path a little bit, but why don't you just kind of d- 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 explain that to us once again.
3: Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, so I did my undergrad in food science and technology. Yep. So actually, uh, in my undergrad, I I had the exposure to many different processing facilities, so the milk, the meat, uh, also the grain, uh, and we also get to manage a lot of animals, but especially livestock. But when I graduated, actually, I I had the opportunity to join the feed industry, and I really liked. At that point, I was focused on the aquaculture species, but my passion has always been companion animals. So then I start looking for options and actually you can realize like there are very few alternatives of um, of these um, career, but it's very interesting because Kansas State is a top program of pet food uh, industry in the green science department. And that's when I contacted Dr. Albrecht and work out. And then I'm here. I, I am completing my master's now. Yeah, and I hope to join the industry
0: soon. Ah, yeah, congratulations. Yeah.
4: Thank you. Uh,
0: Heather, how about your path? How'd you get oh. here?
4: Oh, gosh. I'm a non-traditional student, so I'm a little older, which means my path's a little longer and in some ways a lot more crooked. Uh, I started out as a young girl, always wanting to be a veterinarian. I had what was called vet school tunnel vision. There was never any other answer to the question of what you wanted to be when you grew up other than being a vet. And so when I got through uh, my bachelor's program in pre-veterinary medicine, did a few internships uh, in small animal clinical, I just took a step back. I didn't feel like it was quite the right fit. Uh, Vet school financing kind of made me nervous, and I just didn't see myself in in small animal clinical care. Uh, I was really trying to get into the zoological animal uh, side of the business, and and there just wasn't really a lot of opportunity there at the time. So instead of applying to vet school, I decided to apply to a pet food company that was based out in California, where I'm from, and uh, I got to work there with their uh, animal nutritionists that they had. They formulated a line of zoological diets, so already for carnivore animals, I was, you know, helping to ship out product to zoos all over the country, and I just thought that the greatest thing in the whole world and on top of that they were also manufacturing pet food and uh, were an international brand at that time so i thought gosh what a really cool career path i can still help animals and so i went back to school for my master's degree in animal nutrition it was monogastric so i did swine nutrition for my master's out at cal poly pomona And shortly after that, um, I was attending an industry trade show, met the owner of a small startup pet food company called Nulo, and the owner there needed a product development manager and I was looking for adventure and change and so I, I took the opportunity and moved to Texas. I started working there and uh, that connected me with Dr. Aldridge, who was a consultant there for their company. And uh, when I learned he was a professor at K-State and had a pet food science program, of course, you know, all the bells went off in my head. I've got to get to be a part of that. It was just really cool. Something very relevant to what I did. And so uh, that, that I jumped into the PhD program and fast forward three years later, here I am getting ready to graduate and go back to work. So, yeah.
0: Excellent. Nice story. Nice story. Uh, Amanda, What's your story?
2: Absolutely. So um, back in high school in Connecticut, I th- also thought that I wanted to be a vet. Uh, but I knew that I wanted my undergraduate degree to have a lot of hands-on experience. I'm someone who learns best by doing instead of just reading a book or listening to a lecture. And that led me to Kansas State University, There's a very good vet school here. And the Feed Science program is extremely hands-on. Every, nearly every single class that's required in that undergraduate degree has a lab with it. So you're learning with your hands, but you're also taking lectures as well. So that brought me all the way from Connecticut to Kansas. And by happenstance, Dr. Aldrich and I were paired up as advisor and advisee. I, was, I believe I was one of his very first advisees. Absolutely. Uh, it was a great relationship. Uh, he helped me get my first internship at a pet food company. And it was that internship that solidified for me that there's some things about the vet route that i don't really like and there are a lot of things i really do like about working in the pet food industry so I switched mindsets about halfway through my undergrad and then went and did a master's degree at the university of illinois uh, where i specialized in companion animal nutrition and then the k-state purple blood is never completely out of your system so i got I got pulled back in by Dr. Aldrich. He was looking for someone who wanted to fo- focus on canning, and on wet pet food. And that's an area of the industry that I absolutely love. So I jumped at the opportunity to come back and to really get to understand the food science side of canned pet food and all the technical knowledge and technical skills that not uh, every program is able to pass along to a student.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are your plans after graduation? I guess I should have asked that of all three of you.
2: Sure. Um, so I just accepted a job a couple weeks ago. So I'm uh, I'll be moving in a few weeks, uh, headed back east to Pennsylvania.
5: Okay. Very well. Awesome. Awesome. Congratulations.
2: Thank you.
0: And Heather, you're headed back to are you stand
4: with Nulo? That's right. Yep. So uh, I, I, I'm going to have uh, what's called a role of Heather 2.0 once I go back. So I'm not sure quite what that looks like, but it'll be really exciting, I'm sure.
0: Mm-hmm. And Christina, where are you headed? You stand, uh, you're in school for a while?
4: Uh, no, I want to go to,
3: to get some extra experience. Um, I'm still applying for jobs at this moment. Um, yeah. So I let you know once I know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very well. Uh, Dr. Aldrich, you're going to be losing a couple good ones here. Um, You got a pipeline coming. Uh, How big can the program get? Um, Do you have any limits?
5: I'm there. there. (laughs) (laughs) He needs more hands. Yeah, Yeah, good question. I
1: was (laughs) explaining to someone this morning, the rubber band stretched to the full. I don't know if it'll go much further. Uh, They've all been terribly patient with me through this uh, period of time I mean, frankly what has happened is uh we we want to stay somewhere around eight to ten students but i i always have a trouble saying no to some really high caliber young people that come our way and so i've always tried to keep the doors as open as possible and let uh hope that uh, that there's some sort of remedy on the other side as we get busy and part of that's their patience and grace it's also been that uh, we got hit with COVID last year. You guys probably heard about that in the news, mm-hmm. um, but uh, that has delayed a few folks. And so, several several of the students were um, supposed to be graduating last summer and fall, and unfortunately, we had to delay that because we were pushed off of campus. Um, nobody was angry at us; it just they were more concerned about us uh, contracting and continuing to spread the disease. So. Uh, we were off campus for about five months and that's kind of delayed us that's what's got us kind of doubled up right now we expect uh, by this time well by august we'll be down in our count by at least seven students and i should be back to around total of eight graduate students is kind of the ideal size for one professor Um, what we're hoping to do in the long term scott is is, as i I, I agreed as an industry professional to come in and become an academic, which has been a bit of a mind bender um, all along is that the reason or the, or the only re- interest that I had in being able to do this uh, towards the end of my career is, is that if we could a create a sustainable program and B to build s- some critical mass. And so I'm hoping as we go forward in the next few years, that there'll be some additional industry support to maybe help us with um some additional hiring of other faculty so we can increase our numbers here and truly service what I think the industry has a demand for both in research and also in our graduates. Um, I think we could probably place twice to three times the number of students that we're graduating on an annual basis with pet food companies. Um, it's just a matter of recruiting those students and being able to provide a, enough faculty to carry the coursework.
0: Hmm. I'm assuming there's probably more bandwidth for more students, uh, you know, pet food industry is growing leaps and bounds. And I'm also assuming there's probably other programs out there looking to, to build their own program. Um, what kind of advice would you give them as they look to build their programs?
1: Um, probably the biggest thing is, is don't let the idea that you got to have money get in your way. Just go, do and the money will come. That seems really strange in these area of budgets and constraints. But it's Eric and I used to work for a gentleman, uh, a, a very profound thinker. Uh, and uh, Clay Matil, who was uh, our owner of the Iams company years ago, and he, his statement was and I'm probably paraphrasing here is is you'll always have more money than you will time. So the idea is is that money will come, and I've been able to operate within the boundaries of the university system under that foundation is that if I found great students and had great projects that the money would come for it. And so that's my advice to anybody starting any of these programs. There's plenty of need. You just need to put it out there, build it, and uh, the industry, the students, and the programs will fall into place.
0: Mm. Yeah, great advice. Uh, what kind of impact would you say, maybe it's a little early yet, but what kind of impact would you say that uh, your program your students have had on the industry so far? you have any nice anecdotal stories?
1: Well, I have to think about that, Scott, a little bit. Um, and so leading into that conversation, I would simply tell you that we're starting to see more and more case staters out of our program placed in uh, various companies around the pet food industry, and it's really fun to see them having some success and moving upwards and across to other different opportunities. Um, Most of the folks, and I'll I'll use this anecdote, this was from one of our uh, students that was placed uh, after her master's degree over here at Hills in Topeka, and one of their advisors was basically telling us that uh, while she came in with a master's degree, sh- and and we always hear this idea, of, well, they hit the ground running. He says, no, not just that. She was a two-year head start, about um, ahead of anybody else that we've ever recruited for this for the same job, and and that's because most of what they had recruited in the past were food scientists that had come in from the world-renowned food science programs, but they didn't have any of the baseline understanding of how pet food was manufactured how it was regulated, and how it was evaluated from an animal standpoint or from a human consumer standpoint. And so, you know, the students coming out of here have a two-year head start on anybody else that they might run into that's coming out of an animal science, food science, food engineering program, because they just know this business. And it's different. Pet food is different than human food, and it's different than livestock feed. It is the third leg of the food industry stool.
0: So I've kind of monopolized the uh, microphone here. I, I'd like to open it up to, to the team here. What, what have we not covered yet that, that you guys would like to share that we need to share about uh, the K-State program?
5: Having been able to be at K-State and part of some of their R&D showcases and innovation workshops, I think is very critical, not only for the industry to see and meet these students, but also for other students in graduate programs and agricultural programs across the country to be able to come in and see what what those opportunities are because you don't know what you don't know um and greg highlighted the challenges. sort of like human food but not really it has some principles of animal nutrition and feed production but it's it's there's enough nuances there that it's not a simple plug and play industry um and i think to me it's an incredible time because not only are you going to do this, but you're going to have to have your passport. It is absolutely global. Um, and they're trying to expand more and more and more around the world. So it's very, very much a global, global industry as well.
0: Asking Heather, what, what kind of advice would you give to, um, students? I, I, have had three, I've got three kids in college right now and all three of them, uh, they, they, they really struggle with knowing what to do and finding their path. And they're all finding it, right? You know, we all do. Mm-hmm. But but what kind of advice would you give um, a young student just getting ready to leave high school, looking for a, a school, looking for a major? What kind of advice would you have uh, for them relative to looking at at, at at doing what you're doing?
4: Sure. Uh, I think it's, it's kind of two-sided advice. So one is if they're feeling ready to go straight into college and they feel that kind of compelling direction to just stay in school, then my advice would be to talk to the professors of the programs they're interested in joining. Don't be afraid of them. Um, I see a lot of the young students on campus today and coming in being older than them, they just seem so shy and so isolated in their world and, and afraid of interaction, when in reality professors are there to help them. They're willing and open and that's why they do what they do. So the young students looking for a program, reach out and talk to your professors and just explore, ask questions, that's, that's what they're there for. And on the other side of it, you know, for older students, um, you know, I, I kind of struggle with this, and I wish somebody had given me this advice. But for a while, I told myself the lie that you're too old to go back to school. You know, I graduated, I joined the workforce, I passed 30. And I thought, oh, I could never go back. And that's absolutely not true. You know, if you're if you're interested in a certain area, then yeah, it's never too late to go back. And I, I find myself laughing now, you know, I see PhD students that are in their 40s, 50s, even older. And I'm just like, why did I tell myself that? So I, I hope that if industry members are looking and in, in going back to uh, broaden their academic career, that it's never too late. So, so don't let that stop you.
0: Yeah, great advice. So, Amanda Christina, any thoughts?
2: Sure, I'll jump in if you don't mind, Christina. I think that Heather's made some excellent points, and maybe the one thing I'd add is that if have, taking an internship is an option that's available to you, even if it's just a summer internship or. I know some companies will do a, a one week immersive experience for college students. Uh, definitely take advantage of those opportunities. Uh, for me, they helped shape my career and even been uh, items that have come up in job interviews is down the road. So I think internships, getting to actually have some experience in the industry that you think you might wanna work in is very valuable. It can help confirm for you that yes, this is exactly where I wanna be. It can also tell you, mm, Maybe this isn't quite exactly what I want to do. It's not really what I was expecting.
0: Great advice. Christina, anything to add?
3: Yeah, uh, actually, you pretty cover most of it, but I would also recommend uh, young uh, students to jump into the internet. We have like endless information there, and we can actually get to see um, how different careers can actually be after you're done. Like, how are the jobs you can find after you you study certain career? So I think it's also very beneficial for us when we don't know like what to do or what we expect when we follow certain path. So it's very beneficial to 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 get into deeper information and of course like this is the university contact yeah, professors. That's also very helpful as well. Hmm.
0: So, Christina, while you have the floor, um, during the webinar, you outlined some research that you had been working on. Would you mind kind of give us an overview of what, uh, what that was about and what some of the, the conclusions were?
3: Sure. Um, well, my, my research was about replacing the functionality of gluten. So nowadays we have treats that are mainly uh, made with wheat. And it's basically because we contain gluten, which is a protein that helps with the structural ability, and also the like it helps a lot in the process of the of the product. But there are also other grain alternatives. So in our specific case, we evaluate sorghum. Uh, but since sorghum is a gluten-free cereal, we replace the the functionality of gluten with different proteins. So for this study, we evaluated different sources that, such as egg protein, spray dried plasma, and gelatin, and we compared how those behaved to to the with original prog- the original product. So it was very interesting, and uh, we got like very nice results. Uh, one of the main results and um, the findings we had was that the hardness of the product was significantly improved. So we actually confirmed like that this protein can with bind, uh, water binding capacity, and also during baking, they have the ability uh, for So they, they couldn't they could be shaped in the rotary motor which is a, a specific uh, shaping technology that we use in, in this research. Um, we did not find uh, differences in the acceptability when we perform a ranking test with dogs. So that's also a very interesting outcome we we got in this experiment and uh other outcome that we that we had was that when we um evaluate with a sensory human panel actually uh, they they realized like the all the cracks of the products were removed when adding the protein which actually can translate in the acceptability by the pet owner uh, when they look into the product and also in the color of the protein that generates the product so they
0: created like uh, darkening in in the process. Dr. Aldridge, any, or Mm -hmm. Eric, any, any questions for Christina?
5: Yeah. For me, I always wonder, the first question is, you know, kind of what would I have done differently? Mm, Um, And then, you know, as scientists, the next question is always, okay, well, what's next? Most studies are going to give you, three, four, five, and I'm not asking about, you know, proprietary information, but you know, with what you've learned, where would you like to go next with evaluating baking or preference testing or those types of things?
3: I would have included more preliminary trials before getting into the big round that we had. Um, yeah, because we experienced a little bit of trouble while processing, especially date protein. So I would recommend or. If I can, like, restart the project, I could do more preliminary trials with that. Mm -hmm. And also, like, it will be very interesting to evaluate more in depth each protein. We evaluate the cereals by themselves, so evaluate white sorghum, red sorghum, and the wheat. But Mm -hmm. we don't have, like, much information about the proteins and the uh, characteristics they have by itself. Okay. So that's very important, and actually, it well like it is still a gap in our study. Um, it it will come next, like.
5: Good, good. So that'd be the next way, kind of get a little more detailed about all those individual proteins, and maybe do, a few more, you know, bench top trials or bench top assays to make sure you've got all the, the, uh, the protocols and things in place before you go to the much larger trial. Yep, so
3: we actually have a wider range of the uh, protein inclusion in this this case.
1: Excellent, excellent. To that point, uh, what Christina's project was about is, can we replace wheat with another grain that contains no gluten Mm -hmm. and use a soluble animal protein? The answer was, Christina, could we do it? We, yeah. we
2: could. Mm-hmm.
1: now we got to fine tune this because i don't think we're at the end of whether or not it's uh you know there's some there's some probably some trade-outs some replacement values we may get into some combinations of proteins so mm-hmm. you know christina really led us down the path of yes we can now we get to get down into the details
5: right 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 and that mm-hmm. to me is a fun thing how do we start tailoring these matrices, how do we start tailoring the processes? How do we start building those data sets? Because what a company is going to ask is what will this do to my cost? What will this do to my run times? What claims could I potentially make on the product? So start getting into some of those fine tunes because you may have, you may do one thing that meets this criteria, but it's a trade off in another area. And to me, that's exactly what we're asked to do as technologists. Yes, we can. Now let's make it a little more tailored. Let's make it a little more fine-tuned. Let's be able to articulate a little stronger. So that, that's an excellent job, in my opinion.
1: So. So, uh, so, it, so in my perspective here, in some respects, we could continue to go down this path here at K-State and explore a little bit more. And we'd be looking at some of those fundamental trade-offs between the type of protein, the concentration of the protein, and the type of starch and the process. But, uh, you know, what we've done right now is opened up the door for, as a technology for companies to go in and take that same thing and adapt and and, uh, Mm -hmm. refine in their own production processes. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, the production process is gonna be quite a bit different from one manufacturer to the next. So we've at least opened that door. We'll we'll continue to explore here a little bit, but, um, you know, for pet food companies that wanna go down this path, uh, the proof of concepts there.
5: Good. Good. Excellent.
0: Excellent. Amanda, tell us a little bit about, uh, the presentation that you gave during the real science lecture series and what were some of the key findings of your experiments?
2: Absolutely. So, uh, this was just a small portion of my research from my PhD and it specifically looked at some of the typical and common carbohydrate hydrocolloids that are used in wet tested. We've, in the past, we've learned a lot about how they affect nutrition and stool quality, but no one has ever looked at their functional benefits to the food product itself. So uh, we looked at guar gum, capicaraginan, locustine gum, and xanthan gum as our four different carbohydrate hydrocolloids, um, and then included a little bit of a a confusing sometimes design, but uh, all of our treatments had at least a half percent of guar gum uh, and then had three of the other treatments that also had either a half percent of one of the other three hydrocolloids. Uh, and so we were able to see that by adding these hydrocolloids, we increased batter thickness, which is beneficial for when we're filling our cans or other containers in wet pet food. Uh, And we also saw differences in texture. So uh, our kappa and Gorgam treatment had a very firm, brittle gel structure whereas our locustine gum or xanthan gum with gorgum treatments were more rubbery. They still had a nice loaf shape, uh, but they uh, were a little more uh, forgiving when we applied force to them.
5: Well, I've got a question, and this is, we may have to guess at it a little bit, and I think that's okay, because, again, we're, we're just sitting here brainstorming. But dogs, there's definitely differences in texture. And dogs are in three days, but we all know cats are not small dogs, and and texture is absolutely critical. What would be? What is the texture of a wet product need to be for cats? Should it be more crumbly? Should it hold together more, um, so that they can actually bite and eat, or should it have some of the more you know liquid, moist phases so they lick? What? What's our guesstimation on what that texture might look like? Or do we even, I mean, can we even guess at that? I know I can't guess at it right now. I mean, so that was kind of my question out of the blue.
2: I'll at least try to guess at it. Um, I'll start off by saying that there's very little research done in wet pet food,
1: even looking
2: at nutrition. Um, So there's there's some uh, indication that cats would actually prefer something that's a softer texture. Um, dogs tend to bite and chew their food, whereas cats will use their tongues more to lap the food up.
3: Mm-hmm. So that's
2: why some cat owners see that their cats will lick the gravy before they eat the chunks in a chunk and gravy product. Right. Um, so I would say something that's softer, a little more lickable, laughable. Um, and then every cat is different. I think every yep. cat knows their cat is special and has their own unique preferences. <laughs>
5: So best of luck all the cat owners. Is it just me that the cats actually take pride in being different from everyone else? I mean, and dogs are unique. So, you know, small breed dogs, but we have, it seems that we have larger groups and trends, but it's almost like at times every cat in the colony has their own little quirks and differences. And this is what they like to eat out of and how it sums on a flat surface. Some prefer a bowl, and, and I do remember working with some of the wet products that the viscosity of the gravy was very critical, such that it would drain through if you're doing a C&G type product. It would drain more toward the bottom such that the cats would, would eat the chunks of the nutrition at that in that particular formula, rather than just licking the gravy and leaving the chunks behind. But is it just my opinion that cats seem to take pride in being unique, or is Or am I just misreading it?
1: I think they're just brutally indifferent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: And maybe blissfully ignorant that they don't realize that not all cats are exactly like them. That maybe they're the normal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, building uh, on Eric's question, Amanda, so... Uh, and instead of the animal, what, what's their preference? What's what's the human prefer? Do we know that? And ha- have you guys done any uh, market research and trying to understand that at all?
2: Uh, so I hate to keep repeating the same answer, but unfortunately, we really don't know a lot about wet pet food in the peer-reviewed literature. Um, that was uh, an area that Dr. Aldrich and I have discussed going into in the future, uh, with the sensory analysis, sensory analysis center here at Kansas state university. You so know, really understanding what do pet owners prefer? What are they expecting out of a canned pet food? So mm-hmm. hopefully that will be coming in the future.
0: Spoken like a true scientist, more research is needed. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> well, yeah.
1: a, the problem is, is there's no research done so far in that yeah. area. So, you know, there is more research needed because it's a huge gap. I mean, uh, Uh, the the various meetings I go to and conferences and we'll talk with these students will take their posters or their presentations and somebody will catch me in the hallway and say, we already knew that. We already knew that information. And my point to them, if it wasn't published, it wasn't done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's so much of the work that people assume we know from human foods, or they assume we know from the companies and their marketing uh, and positioning of their products, but it's not written down anywhere. Good luck finding it. Uh, we've got to go build that library, and that's kind of what we're trying to do here.
0: Yeah, yeah, good for you, Heather. Let's uh, let's turn to you. You gave a very nice presentation on probiotics during the Real Science Lecture Series. Tell us about that, and what kind of conclusions did you come to?
4: Sure. So the probiotic I was working with through my research was the Ganedin BC-30. It's a bacillus coagulans sporulated probiotic. And uh, non-science, just industry talk, that one's been very much promoted as a probiotic that's great for processed foods on the basis that it survives. So it's one that we can guarantee viability for. Uh, My company is included in promoting its benefits for dogs and cats. But much of that support has been based on what we know in humans. So to Dr. point what do we know about dogs and cats and this probiotic it just hadn't been done before so much of my research was a pilot study on understanding how this probiotic responds to extrusion processing which is going to be one of the main ways that pet food is produced as well as what are some of those benefits that we you know are we actually going to see them and if we see them in the animal at what dose does it take to get there So just key highlights of what we found is that the probiotic did survive extrusion, Um, depending on what our settings were for that extruder, we saw anywhere between uh, two up to about three and a half log reduction, which equates to over 99.9% loss. So it sounds like we're losing a lot, but when you think in probiotic numbers, if you're starting with a very high dose, say seven log, then losing three log may be acceptable depending on what your target dose is for the finished product. So it's all relative to what the finished product intention is and and how that extruder process is run. And that can be different depending on what facility, how their extruder's configured, um, what matrix they're producing it with. uh, For instance, how much water they're putting into it, how much fat is in the mixture. All of these variables come together, and at the end of the day, for producers looking to use that probiotic in a base ration, the recommendation that we'd take away is validate the product. Just run it through the process, get it tested for viability, and make sure you're doing your due diligence in in meeting those claims that are put on label, because at the end of the day, that's the guarantee of the consumer, and on the animal health side, if it's going to elicit a benefit, it needs to be at a certain dose. So for ours, uh, that dose was around, uh, 10, it was 10 to the ninth, which is about 1 billion CFU consumed per day, per dog. So we've got to take that into account, backing all the way upstream to how much we put into the products.
0: Dr. Aldum, if you were, uh, sitting in on, on, uh, Heather's defense, uh, what, what, what kind of questions would you ask?
5: Well, we've had a good conversation and I've been fortunate that, um, I've been, they've been around some of the students before and, and, Heather and I've had a conversation about exactly her study was to actually put it through the extrusion process, but we have multiple steps in that process. So as a manufacturer, my question is where would I get the greatest survivability? Should it come through the, you know, a dry mix that then goes through the conditioning cylinder and then through the extruder? Um, should I look at it as part of a component that's going to be enrobed on the outside of the kibble or are there other technologies to try to protect it? So, I mean, I know, and I like the work because the biggest thing is will it survive during extrusion? And some people say, yes, it's short time. Um, but it's high temperatures, high pressures, high moisture, all of those things really just have a, a huge step. And quite honestly, with a lot of the regulations around FESMA, and safety, you there is a bacteria kill step in in the extrusion process specifically to do that. So Heather, help the team understand a little bit and our listeners, um, you know, if the world's your worst year, where would you try to plug these these uh, gut health probiotic technologies in um, to the manufacturing?
4: Sure, uh, I think if it had to be in the food and not served su- separately as a concentrated supplement on the side, then adding it to, as an aerobing feature on the coating of the kibble would be the best bet. Um, you know, when you're exposing the probiotic to those harsh conditions, whether it be steam in the preconditioner or it be all of the, the friction that it's hitting against the screw in the extruder, you're asking a lot of a probiotic. And in mm-hmm. part of my research, I tried to highlight the journey of a probiotic, putting yourself in that organism's shoes I would not wanna come back and be a probiotic. It would be so much work to be able to to withstand all of those different stressors. And by the time you've reached the pet, you still have to pass through the gastrointestinal tract. So I think best foot forward for probiotics, adding it as a coating to the kibble would be the most, uh, or the way to maximize survival, but um, you can also have a number of other ways. You know, if you uh, feed it as a supplement, concentrated on the side, you have a little bit more control over the dose and how it's stored and handled. It doesn't necessarily have to go through mass distribution uh, as kibble would have, so.
5: Okay. All right, that's good. And, and, you know, we, you and I've talked as well. If we can, the more, the more technologies that we can put in the kibble, a lot of people say, well, that just said there to increase the price of the food. It's actually really to help the pet parent with compliance of the regulation. If I can scoop and put it together, that makes my life a lot easier. Um, so we we had that trade-off of supplements and compliance as well. Have you seen some of that same challenges with, with some of these technologies and your customers um, with compliance and as well?
4: Yeah, uh, so putting my new low hat on, we don't sell any supplements on the side, so I can't say I have a lot of experience with pet owners kind of juggling doing both, but I can say from a, a pet food balance standpoint you know that's the reason we put the vitamins and minerals in the food Mm -hmm. so we're not leaving it up to any guesswork in the consumer's home about how much of this do i add did they do it right did they mix it uniformly it's allowing the commercial manufacturers to do that on a very large scale and a very um, high level of expertise that goes behind that so it's not only allowing the customer to have that uh, peace of mind that it's been mixed at the right dose and is being given at every meal, but it takes away that guesswork of did I do it correctly or did I remember to do it, which is really, really common.
5: That compliance piece is something near and dear to my heart, mm-hmm. trying to help customers, but also knowing my own
1: lifestyle. Well, the compliance is part of it, Eric. And the other is, is uh, consistency. So we're typically feeding our dogs twice a day morning and night. And so we have a steady dose coming in twice a day rather than a one-time bolus dose and hope it does the job. Um, And I think that's the biggest uh, feature in regards to the probiotics, these direct-fed microbials, because they're transient. So they're kind of coming in and going out every day. And Mm -hmm. so we've got to sort of scale them or uh, stage them along with the food, because the food becomes a substrate in the colon that We're really trying to influence.
5: Absolutely. I don't know how you all have found out. If you haven't, you certainly will. Once people find out that you work in in pet foods and pet nutrition, they want to ask you questions. And do you all want to, and I don't want you to mention names or individuals. We're not ratting out our favorite aunt or, you know, or, or the neighbor down the street you want to share some one of the funniest questions you've ever been asked
4: I'll jump in uh, there was one I had at a previous company and I, I won't name names but uh, I, I handled several of the phone calls there when one, one of the phone calls that came in from a pet owner and it was a question about a, a vegetarian pet food and the the focus of their question was not for their pet uh, they were actually asking if it was safe to consume the product themselves because as a vegetarian they didn't like eating fruits and vegetables and so they wanted me to tell them over the the phone, it was safe for them to consume a vegetarian pet food and have that be a-okay for them. So I had to very professionally explain to them differences between human nutrition and dog nutrition and why that wouldn't be appropriate uh, with also supporting the fact that it's a great quality product, but we're not going to tell you to eat the pet food. So that was too funny. I still chuckle about it today.
5: I have no idea what (laughs) wine you would serve with with vegetarian pet food. (laughs) I don't know. Amanda, Christina, have have you had any actions with people asking you any type of funny questions yet?
2: I'll jump in. Um, I, I haven't been asked funny questions. I always get the question of what's the best food to feed my dog. Right. Um, but I was brought into um, a family dispute in which uh, family members were screaming and crying that they one side thought they were going to kill the dog and the other side didn't understand why. And uh, it, was, it was quite a tense situation. And everyone looking back on it now laughs that, you know, no pet food company is intentionally putting food out there to kill your dog.
3: Absolutely.
2: Thing that dog owners necessarily need to be worrying as their first priority
3: i don't remember actually like getting a like a funny
2: question just
3: people have been asked me asking me about the raw food like nowadays is like more common to hear so mm-hmm. if it is good if it is bad or also there are a lot of people asking about treats because it can be overwhelming like going to shops and find all types of treats on the market so i have received more of these type of questions like More general. That's like unspecific and funny.
5: (laughs) And I would like to tell you that you will get less questions through your career, but it will. No, you will get. (laughs) And and some folks were asking because they really want to know. Um, There's a lot of information out there. Some of it is questionable, as you know. That it's in the public domain um, for the general populace, and so we kind of have to be that that translator of what do they really mean and what does this mean? And, and, um, I, I I may chuckle about it, but I do get uh, a sense of enjoyment to be able to help people because they, they want to do the very best with these dogs and cats and the animals they share their lives with. Um, money, uh, we say it, it is important But really and truly, they'll sacrifice some other areas just to make sure that their pets are taken care of.
0: Yep. (laughs) Eric, I think we could do a whole podcast on funny questions. Uh, Oh, no, uh,
5: no. We would all get sued. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) With with that, I don't know if you guys noticed, but uh, Stephanie did flicker the lights, which means last call. And so we'll have another round here. And yeah, absolutely. And the the pup back there is getting the best. What would that say?
1: Best dog, dog dad ever. The best dog dad, the best dad ever. Absolutely. Well, yeah, of. I
0: saw you feeding the pup back there. Um, yeah, Lucas decided
1: it's, bad, it's time to go out for a bio break.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's his way of telling you. Absolutely. <laughs> last question. Um, as we've all seen, uh, pet parents are starting to feed their dogs just like they feed the family, right? And that's been a trend for the last several years. So, what's going to be the next big trend? Where, where's this going? And then as kind of a follow-up question to that, uh, as a parting uh, comment is, what excites you about uh, the future of the pets, pet food industry and, and and the research going forward? And so let's start with, who wants to go first? Amanda?
2: Sure, I'll go first. Um, so I believe your first question was, where is the pet food industry going next? Yeah. Uh, i say the sky's the limit. And that's why I love the pet food industry. You know, we've... We've grown so much, even in just the last few years, as an industry. It's a very diverse field, and people always want to be providing the best that they can for their animals. So I know that's not the, the probably the most scientific answer, but the pest industry can go wherever wherever it needs to go, wherever we want it to go. I think.
0: Yeah, nice answer, Heather.
4: I think there's going to be a lot more focus on sustainability as we go forward. And that doesn't always agree with that family feeding type of mentality where we'd have meats that we would find on our own plates, you know, the the nicely cut chicken breasts hand trimmed and all of these grass fed claims and those sorts of things. i really starting to focus in on not just the where the ingredients are coming from, but in the packaging that they're put into and how those packaging are disposed of. Um, So that it, the company that I work for today, there's a lot of focus on that and trying to be better stewards of our planet while also providing that nutrition for our pets. So I think that as as humans start to focus more on that for their own families, we're going to see that trickle into pet as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Well said. Christina, what say you?
3: Yeah, I, I got to agree with Heather. Like nowadays, like the pet food industry, it tries to find like Different raw materials, like not commonly used. So it is in towards to sustainability, but also in the nutrition. So nowadays we see like more research with different and new ingredients. So how these ingredients uh perform on the health uh, of, of the animal. So I think it would be like it will be continuing increasingly. So as much as we get like new ingredients, actually we can test on the animals and see if they are. Uh, available um, can be used in them like with help uh, benefits to them uh, and I remember we have talked uh, for a while but nowadays like people have more access to information so pet owners actually want to like a pet industry companies like providing them solutions to the brain uh, um, sickness that animals can have on different like if the animals want a run or it's a, like a fleet animal, so they want also to have products for that specific target of animals. So we need to create more uh, products for hip brain also targets, similar to what's seen in the human industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Very well. And Dr. Aldrich will give you the last word.
1: So the first, I'm watching Luker here he's he's anxious. I think he's got his, his uh, knees crossed so <laughs> trying to make sure that we get in the call before he uh, he explodes on me. Anyway so the the idea is what's the future. I think the future is uh, as, as the students have already shared with you it's it's pretty wide open. but I would tell you that as uh, Heather and Amanda have have uh, been involved in writing a paper about sustainability, And some of the topics that I'm hitting right now uh, with the on the on the trade show sort of scene with the conferences, uh, protein is going to be our biggest challenge moving forward. Um, our, Our world population is growing rapidly, continuing. There's more and more of those folks eating more protein, more protein from animal sources. And so for those of us in the companion animal side, the pet food side, we're getting squeezed and we're going to have to start to embrace a lot different uh, varieties of protein uh, that we use in our companion animal diets, and it may be more of a harken back to vegetable-based proteins, not exclusively animal-based, and it may be alternative sources of protein, insects protein, uh, single-cell proteins, microalgae Um, even some animal protein sources that we may have discarded in the past. So uh, we're going to have to get a little bit more open and receptive as consumers to alternative sources of ingredients rather than being overly humanized. Otherwise, we just won't be able to sustain this business.
0: Well, we've certainly enjoyed getting uh, a behind the scenes look at the newest research in the pet food market. And so thank you for joining us tonight and sharing your research. We know the future is bright with the great minds like yours leading the charge. And thank you to our loyal listeners for stopping by at, this, at the exchange to sit around and, and spend some time with us here tonight. If you like what you heard, please remember to drop us a five-star rating on the way out. You can also get a really cool Real Science Exchange t-shirt just by hitting the like or the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And then send us a screenshot along with your address and your size to anh.marketing at Our scientific conversations continue at the Real Science Lecture Series of webinars. Visit bowchemanh.com slash real science to see upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.